Welcome, everyone, to the Harvard Association for Law and Business podcast. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I am a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by Jim Cook, billionaire founder and chairman of the Boston Beer Company. Jim, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Jim, maybe it would be helpful to take a step back and talk about how you got to Harvard College. You know, you come from five generations of brewers in your family. How did how did growing up in a brewing family in Ohio shape your outlook on life? Well, um, I had beer at an early age. So <laughs> it made me happy. Um, and, uh, it was um, something that had been in my family for a very long time. Uh, every oldest son for five generations had been a brewer. Uh, but for my dad, it was a very hard way to make a living. He got out of brewmaster school in 1948. Uh, and at that time, there were about a thousand breweries in the U.S. Um, by the time I started Sam Adams in 1984, those, that thousand breweries had dwindled down to about 50. So. You know, 95% of the breweries uh, went out of business in that 36-year period. And, and with that, uh, the jobs for brewmasters disappeared. So um, he had to uh, find another way to make a living. And he was not uh, you know, hoping that I would be a, a brewer. Um, he was kind of done with that. It had been a really tough way to make a living. So... Uh, while I had exposure to beer and it actually homebrewed with my dad, it wasn't something that I saw in my future. And so, you know, as you as you took your journey through and you went to Harvard College and you know, even fast forward to once you got into Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School, um, you did something relatively unprecedented, uh, unprecedented for the time once you were a year into the JD MBA program at Harvard. You, you took a leave of three years before coming back and completing both of your degrees. Talk a bit more about what you did during those three years, you know, what you learned and, and what went through your mind when you made that decision. And I think it's particularly interesting today, given how cookie cutter many folks try to engineer their career paths. Yeah, I've uh, actually always been a fan of, you know, having a, a, a little bit of a jagged resume with a few, you know, rough edges um, because, you know, the, you know, the conventional career path is just that, very conventional, uh, and certainly uh, ill-suited to a lot of individuals who think they need to follow it. And uh, in, in my case, uh, I uh, went right from college to the JD MBA program at Harvard, and uh, you know, I did the first year of, of law school, and then I did the first year of business school, and I felt like I was in this this river that was carrying me to a place that I wasn't sure I wanted to go, and uh, and I, I felt like I, I just needed to get out of the river to really uh, find my own course, uh, and I realized something that, that Harvard doesn't tell you, because uh, they don't want you to know it. Um, but if you drop out, they're, they're almost certainly going to take you back if you leave in good 
years. That's a long time. So uh, I, and one of the things that I really wanted to do, um, and I felt like I could only do it in my 20s, was um, teach for Outward Bound and, and pursue my interest in um, mountaineering and climbing uh, and kayaking and, and other outdoor uh, activities. So that's what I did. And, and I, I wrote a book uh, published uh, earlier this year called Quench Your Own Thirst Business Lessons Learned Over a Year or Two. And in writing that, I realized that a lot of what I learned that was useful in business uh, and in life, I learned at Outward Bound, you know, about leadership, about motivating people, uh, things like that, I, I got that from Outbound. So to me, it was three and a half years, very well spent. Yeah, and that's interesting because, you know, you talk a little bit about, um, you know, risk there and, and jumping, you know, out of the, the conventional norms of HBS and HLS only to come back. And so, you know, I want, I want to talk about kind of that risk-seeking nature a little bit. You know, after you graduated from the JD MBA program, you went to BCG, you spent six years there uh, doing management consulting, and really as you were established at BCG, you made a pivotal decision, right? You, you took a risk and, and you found a company. And when you look back now, it's, it's apparent what a great decision that was and what a great move it was for your career. And I want to unpack your time at, at Boston Beer a little bit more, especially some key operating lessons. But let's first start by talking about how you decided to leave a distinguished institution like BCG and truck out on your own. Um, you know, I'd love if you could paint the picture of that point in your career and, and what drove you to make that move. Um, when I was, uh, when we first met uh, several years ago when I was talking at uh, Harvard Law School and I was talking to the dean about, you know, what do people do when they get out of Harvard Law School, what is the career path out of here? And she told me that ultimately, you know, 85 to 95% end up in one form or another of corporate law, a very traditional uh, law practice. And, uh, and that that number was about the same as it was um, over 40 years ago when I was uh, at Harvard Law School. And that was shocking to me, um, and, and, it just, and, it, and it showed me all the, sociolo- the sociology of our decisions, the, the, the peer pressure and the, and the conventional career paths that we all adopt, and our inability to see beyond that and to actually make rational decisions about what is what career are we going to pursue, which is arguably you know, the second most important decision that you do in your life after, you know, choosing uh, your spouse. Um, and, and the reason that I was so shocked that the, the career paths haven't changed is if I look back, okay, when I was in Harvard Law School in the early, mid-70s, um, the rewards of being a partner at a, you know, a good law firm were about equal to the alternatives of, of going into the corporate world or going into investment banking or going into, you know, uh, financial uh, uh, careers, hedge funds, private equity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
cetera. Uh, now, uh, the, you know, there's no more tenure, there's no security, um, and you get paid a fraction of what an equally successful person in alternative career paths get paid. Yet, this, you know, uh, quite statistically valid sample of hundreds and hundreds of some of the most intelligent, capable, rational people that our society produces makes the second most important decision of their life completely wrong. And, you know, because all the rewards have shifted, but the, the, the choice that people make hasn't, which tells me that people out of Harvard Law School who are amazing people, who will be successful, whatever they do, who have incredible opportunities, who are recruited by alternative careers, they are so influenced by you know, the, the sociology of, of peer pressure and conventional choices and inability to really see all of their options and understand and appreciate them. And that was shocking to me that so many bright, capable, rational people make such an important decision completely wrong. So I just, I, I had to say that that was the most uh, stunning thing that I learned when I came to visit uh, Harvard Law School uh, two years ago. And then the numbers haven't changed. Uh, that uh, career catastrophe is still true. Yeah, I, rem- I actually, I remember us having that conversation and I, I actually remember, you know, one of the folks in, in the audience that day asking you, um, you know, about embarking on, on BCG and, and taking a career um, in something that they hadn't gone to graduate school for. And I remember your response that kind of, you know, made folks in the room chuckle, which was, you haven't learned to be a lawyer here either. So what's the difference, right? And so I, I think that, right. And so that, that piece of you know, it sounds a little flippant at first response, but the the underlying idea there is, you know, at Harvard Law School, you learn how to think. Um, and so finding your passion to attach it to a thought process is the most important and most introspective thing that you can do, as opposed to blindly jumping in to a career in law because, you know, you are already at law school, so you have convinced yourself that that is the only um, at- attached addendum that you can go on to. Exactly. And that's- so thankful that you know you and your uh, so many of your fellow members of your law and business association actually display rationality and make the right decision. So let's say you make that first decision properly, and then you go on to make the decision of how do you switch from a BCG, you know, to taking such a big risk and founding your own company. And and I think that ties actually very closely with the sociology aspect that you're talking about, which is. Once you are at an established institution and, and once you have a pedigree, right, you, you had a pedigree, you had Harvard College, Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School, the Boston Consulting Group, you're, you're in a certain world, you're in a, you're in a certain social sense at that point too. Taking the leap, you know, these days jumping and starting your own company has started to become a little bit dangerously glorified. The startup world is getting a little popular and heavy. But at that point in time, entrepreneurship is not as, you know, it's not as sexy as it is today. So how do you think through that decision when, when you made it and you said, you know what, I'm going to leave BCG, I'm going to trek out on my own, and I'm going to found this company? Well, now that one was kind of a, uh, you know, a, a career shift in a very you know, meaningful way. Um, 
would involve uh, probably as much or more risk than uh, outward bound did. Um, because, you know, as you point out, there was no real culture of entrepreneurship back then. Um, you know, the, uh, the Steve Jobses who, you know, created uh, so much sort of glory uh, for entrepreneurship and, and many other people, they didn't exist. Uh, so, you know, it, that one was something where uh, I, I did make a, a real shift and I, some people would want to make it, others not. Because um, here was my situation. I, I've been at BCG six years. I really enjoyed being a consultant. I, I liked the opportunity to learn. Um, it was, uh, you got lots of different cases, worked in different industries. Um, BCG at that point was kind of a combination of a, you know, a real business and a think tank. So it was quite a unique place. And uh, I loved that uh, for the first six years because I was really learning and growing. And then uh, it became uh, different and I was learning not, you know, about business, about industry, not really growing and developing. Instead, what I was doing was learning to be a consultant you know, and to sell cases, uh, to manage the cases. I wasn't really doing the work any that I loved anymore. I was managing it, and I didn't want to do that. And I realized I don't want to be a consultant the rest of my life. I love learning, growing, and developing. But once I stopped doing that, I was learning just to be a consultant. And that wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And, and having realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, I soon realized that if I don't want to do it for the rest of my life, I don't want to do it tomorrow. So um, I went in and I gave my notice, uh, and I thought about, well, what do I want to do? I did not want to work in corporate America, uh, and you know, I, I'd done reasonably well at, at BCG. I, I saved my money. Um, I owned my house uh, outright, and so I, I felt somewhat financially secure, and, and I had the blessing of you know spending all those years uh, at BCG. And one of the things that I learned out of that is you don't need a lot of money to be happy. Uh, if you love what you're doing, and you know your family's good, and you know you're in middle class surroundings, uh, that's a pretty good thing. Uh, and that's better than like making a lot of money doing something that you're miserable at. Uh, so I did accept the fact that uh, if I went out and started my business, I would not be able to, uh, you know, duplicate the lifestyle that I had based on my BCG salary. Uh, so I, in my business plan, uh, my Sam Adams. Was meant to uh, take five years to grow to a little over a million dollars in sales. It would be eight people, uh, 5,000 barrels of beer a year that we would brew. And I could pay myself about $75,000, which, you know, in today's dollars, I don't know what that is, probably 150, uh, maybe well, something like that, 150, $180,000. And that was, you know, I thought that was a good living because when I was, uh, I had the, the good fortune of uh, 
Yeah, and I like the way that you think about balancing that passion versus chasing money because I think you actually have a higher chance at making more outsized impact if you're if you're chasing passion, uh, which making money is a byproduct of, um, as opposed to just chasing money. But what I'm interested in, uh, kind of on that line of thought, is how do you think about passion and, and professional development? And what I mean by that is how do you think about balancing the age-old idea of you know doing what you love and following your passion, especially early in your career, with going into some of the more established trajectories to build skills? And and those are soft skills and and hard skills. You know either um, you know uh, services side companies like you know management consulting firms, investment banks, or or these days even you know technology companies like a Google or a Facebook or so. And I think you know the decision is of what you make early in your career and where you're going to go is is exceedingly important given how much of an inflection point moves you make earlier in your career can become. You know, I think compounding effects, compound interests in careers are real. And a lot of young professionals would probably be better off to think through these steps, you know, with clear intent. So how do you think through that, um, you know, balancing the professional development, developing actual skills and, and the timeline of, you know, doing what you love and following your passion? My perspective on it was that you've got years and years to sort of gather your forces. Um, you know, I was 34 years old when I started at Boston Beer Company, so you know that was not uh, you know uh, not young. Uh, and but when I started it, I had had a lot of different experiences. Um, the six years at BCG taught me a lot about business uh, and at that time BCG uh, you know, didn't really have specialized practice areas um, because you couldn't work for competitors you really couldn't work in the same industry uh, more than once so you know I, I was a manufacturing consultant but it ran the gamut from you know construction from engineering services from foundries from paper mills from you know timber and lumber et cetera et cetera so I had uh, truly varied experiences and I think when you're thinking about you know gathering uh, your forces uh, gathering your capabilities and your competencies um, you know what you want to avoid is um, you know the, the kind of experience where okay you have I don't know, let's say you've got six years experience in investment banking, but it's not really six years of experience. It's the same year of experience six times. Uh, And, you know, so that really isn't helping. Um, You know, if if, uh, I would 
started. I had a lot of confidence. Um, I had a great understanding of the strategic variables. I knew a lot about just the nuts and bolts of how business worked. I had you know, a law degree, so uh, I kind of understood my legal situation. So I came to the startup of Boston Beer Company very well equipped to succeed. And so talk, talk actually a little bit, um, you know, about the difference between an advisory role and, and, and being an entrepreneur. Um, and I remember, you know, one story you told me in the past, which really stuck with me. And it was an experience about really relishing the difference between advisory and entrepreneurship from a mentality perspective. It was the experience when you had just first started out and you told your friend about buying computers to track sales. And he turned and asked you whether you had any sales at all um, and really encouraged you to get out there and sell beers. And, you know, from what I remember, that was a moment that really ref- that really forced you to reflect on the way you thought about your skill set and, and value you would need to bring to the table as an entrepreneur as opposed to uh, an advisor. So talk, a, talk briefly a bit more about this mentality and the adjustment you had to make. Yeah, um, that was a, a formative experience, and I'm, I'm glad you remember it. It was actually uh, my uncle, truly my mother's cousin, but and he had been a mentor uh, and he was one of my original investors and uh, he called me up when I was still in my office at BCG as I was transitioning out and uh, was in the process of starting a company and he, he said, so Jim, uh, what'd you do today? And I said, well, uh, I went out and I looked at computers and this was when a computer was actually a pretty sizable purchase uh, and he said oh computer huh uh, what do you need a computer for and I said well I need to you know keep track of things uh, accounting and, and the sales and oh, sales uh, you want to keep track of sales that's great do you have any and I said well no not yet he said well Jim you know I've seen a lot of businesses I've seen a lot of work that went bankrupt you know and all the bankrupt businesses had plenty of computers. They went bankrupt because they didn't have enough sales. So why don't you forget about the computer and go out and get some sales? And I thought about that and I said, oh my gosh, you know, he's right. I've, I've been playing company. I, the beer is ready. Um, I was trying to get a distributor. I hadn't fully faced the fact that no distributor wanted me. And my only way to get the business going was to personally go from bar to bar and try to sell beer. And I never sold anything in my life. Uh, I, in fact, you know, it's, it's, uh, probably all of the hyper overeducated people listening to this podcast, you know, I looked down my nose at sales. I thought it was a little bit tacky. I was above that. Sales was for people with you know, gravy on their shirt. Uh, it just wasn't something that somebody with three degrees from Harvard did. And I realized, you know, I'm not giving advice anymore. I got to go do it. Um, if I don't go out and sell beer, I'm going broke. And so I, conv- I did what you know people like all of us do. I went to the Coop and I bought a book on sales. I actually went to the Harvard Business School Coop and they had one book on sales. It wasn't hard to pick. Uh, it was Tom Hopkins, Mastering the Art of Sales. And you know, it's kind of polyester guy. Uh, on the cover with a big salesman smile and I read the book from cover to cover uh, and so I was scared shit 
not, you know, when you're in advisory capacity, you're not forced to have to do so many things that take you out of your comfort zone. When you're running a small business, you have to do that all the time. You might, you might be CEO on your title, but it's not chief executive officer because you don't have anybody to execute. You know, my company was two people when I started. I wasn't chief executive officer. I was chief everything officer. That's what CEO means at a startup. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I, I really like the I really like the line you said there of playing company. Because I think actually when you look at a lot of startups today, um, you know, you see a lot of people running through the motions, right? And uh, I think separating actually running through the motions and being good at the idea of running a startup, which is, you know, being a pro in fundraising or being a pro in writing a business plan or or knowing the right, you know, VCs, et cetera is a lot different than actually having a product that is worth, um, you know, making it in the market. And I think that's a distinction that a lot of young folks are, are seeing that the importance is not, you know, being good at startups. The, the importance is being very good at the particular startup and particular company that you're trying to form. Um, well, and every company is built on essentially uh, the product and the between them, and I know, you know, when I started Sam Adams, um, I I learned to focus myself and, and focus the company. And uh, I told Rhonda, the uh, woman that I started with, the, when it was two people, she said, "Well, what do we need to do, Jim?" And I said, "Rhonda, we really only need to do two things. We need to make great beer, and we need to work our butts off to sell it." And the other stuff doesn't really matter. We need to make great beer. We need to work our butts off to sell it. If we're not successful, nobody's going to care. We'll just go bankrupt. So um, that reminded me to just think, find the one, two, or three things where you have to be absolutely great. And then kind of uh, ignore as much as you can all the other stuff. And so... You know, thinking about your educational pedigree, it's, it's interesting in today's time. You know, you, you got an MBA and a JD from Harvard, one degree you never pursued a career in, and the other, you know, an MBA where there is a lot of conversation about its relevance. Um, and if you, so if you were at the same juncture in your life today, would you have made the same decision and done a JD MBA or, or even have gone to graduate school at all? <laughs> well, I got to be totally honest. Uh, this might not be a very useful answer to the question, but I feel very blessed in life. I get to do what I love. Um, I've been able to create a whole revolution in craft beer. So, you know, I've been able to make my little ding in the universe um, and been very happy doing all those things. So uh, I look back and go, well, I'm not smart enough to reconstruct this correctly to produce a better outcome. So, you know, my honest answer to your question is I wouldn't change a thing. And now, um, maybe the more generalizable truth about it is that, you know, uh, as I look back, you know, my before I started Sam Adams, the jobs and had the skills I collected were quite a hodgepodge of very, very different, uh, seemingly unrelated things that made for a terrible resume. I, I actually, you know, 
from Harvard, I get this incredible pedigree, everybody's going to want me. But because I had this weird resume, you know, about two-thirds of the interviewers just uh, were turned off, thought it was weird, didn't understand my decision-making and my motivations, and I didn't get job offers. Uh, but there were a handful that did, and those were the people that I, I wanted to work with, in particular Boston Consulting Group. So. Um, I guess my learning from it is, you know, you can string together this kind of weird scrapbook of experiences and competencies, um, and they can actually make you into a very well-rounded, very omnicompetent person who has lots and lots of choices in life. I could have done lots of things, you know, when I was 34 with the weird background that I'd assembled. Yeah, that's interesting, Jim. And so as a final question, what's your best advice for students, you know, coming out of graduate school or, or coming into the workforce these days? If you had to give the elevator pitch for, you know, the, the things you think are critical to think through as folks think about their career paths, what would it be? Um, I think particularly for, you know, people listening to this who, you know, are highly educated, highly skilled, highly intelligent, you know, Frankly, you're going to do well no matter what it is that you do. And you should really think not about what's going to make me financially successful because the reality is, you know, you're going to do just fine. You're not going to be homeless. You're not going to starve. You're going to be able to support your family. Do what's going to make you happy because at the end of the day, which would you rather be, happy or which, yeah. Unless you're some kind of weird sociopath, you'd rather be happy than rich. And it's a lot easier to find uh, a path in life that will make you happy than it is to find one that's going to make you really rich. So pick the happy. That would be my simple advice. So I'm going to go have a beer. Cheers. <laughs> well, thanks, Jim. This has been incredibly insightful. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share so many great lessons and key learnings from your incredibly successful career. I think it's cool that you're doing what you're doing. I mean, you're taking your time to do all this for the benefit of others. So um, you're doing the Lord's work, man. God bless you. I appreciate it, Jim. Thanks so much, and we'll, we'll definitely right. talk soon. Okay, bye now. All right, take care. To our listeners, tune in next time to the Harvard Association for Law and Business podcast as we continue to connect with business luminaries and discuss their career retrospectives.